Tonight's talk is on self-doubt. We have spent uh, a lot of time during this course already talking about healing and the relationship of meditation to healing. If not explicitly, certainly implicitly, in the way that we've created a tone of allowance, self-acceptance, patience and kindness. And what we're healing to is our self-abuse. Actually, the physical abuse that we may have suffered in our lives usually pales by comparison to the self-abuse that is generated afterwards. Because the physical abuse was rather located in a particular time and place But the self-abuse we carry with us and is a continuation sometimes right on through our lives. And the self-abuse has its roots in self-doubt. And self-doubt creates a sense of self-distrust. And without trust, we have a loss of passion, sometimes a loss of interest. Frequently, we don't have a platform on which to open and to be vulnerable because we don't trust We aren't willing to risk. And so that keeps us very contained. It keeps us very stagnant. And yet, it's obvious that given the lives that some of us have led, we just can't open, that it's far too risky to do that. And so we have to start very small. We have to start very simply. And sometimes we can just start with this moment and to trust this moment. To open to this moment. What does that mean? Already, I think, we have seen that there's very little that impinges upon us when we open to the immediate present. 
that is genuinely risky. It's just what is being displayed in our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, sounds. It's when we get very complex and get lost in a lot of thinking and building scenarios that the simplicity of this moment gets turned into a burden and into an abuse in which I will not risk. So if we can start, those of us with the histories of mistrust, if we can start with just the simplicity of what is happening to me now and build our trust there, build our platform there, I think there is very little that we can't meet from that moment that will harm us or do any more or perpetuate our self-abuse. So tonight's talk is about self-doubt and how to heal to it. For the meditation practice is very one, is very much one, in which we start off giving a lot of weight to our thinking, a lot of weight to the content, to our situations. And very slowly we begin to begin to live in a different way in relationship to those thoughts, those ideas. And yet, there are still patterns of mind that seem to follow us, that are sticky. It's as if we had flypaper and we put our hand on flypaper and then tried to pull it off. There are areas of stickiness that aren't able to be seen as just thinking. One of those areas is our self-doubt. And although we call it a hindrance, it's, we're usually so identified with that pattern that we have very little space. We have very little awareness of it. It follows us. It has condensed itself into a belief system with such power that we don't have the spaciousness of mind to be able to catch it or to be able to see it. and thus really get a handle on it. One aspect of self-doubt is the aspect that says, I can't do this. And how that comes about is that we sit down and we try, and it's a very difficult practice very difficult to follow one's breath, very difficult, very simple to say, but very difficult to do. And what happens is that because we get frustrated with that, we get angry at it, we project our own inability to function the way we want ourselves to, and we say to ourselves, this is really a bunch of crap. And in that, we also say, I can't do it. And that's what we really mean, is that we've projected our own 
doubting onto the method. And then it becomes internalized as I can't do it. And then it just falls flat. One expression of I can't do it is you can do it. Because we sit around and we see each other sitting like Buddhas. And I look up from my cushion and everyone seems to be sitting so still. And yet I'm having all this turbulence of mind and I think, oh, everyone can do it but me. I'm the one person in this room that can't do it. There are a hundred Buddhas here and one schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't do it takes the form of you know better than me. And so we project our self-doubt onto something else. So you know better than I do. And when you know better than I do, I have to follow you. I want to conform to find out what you know, because you know and I don't. And so we have given away our power in that statement. We can rest very easily in that conformity. And you know, we can't tolerate differences when we conform either because it throws us back on our self-doubt. I had a, when I was a monk in Asia, one of the uh, Watts that I um, visited was a Western Watt had Western monks in there, and there was a young, relatively young Australian who had taken robes as a salmonera, a novice. And he um, kept telling people that this wasn't the right practice for him. It didn't feel right. He had gotten into it, and it just didn't feel right. And the Westerners who were there were saying, listen, it's just doubt. Just see the doubt and, uh, and go on. It's just doubt. You don't have to listen to that. And so one night, in the middle of the night, he got up, he took off his robes, and he just left. And it was because there was no escape clause. There was no escape clause given to him. There was no way that he could have left. There was no way for him to tune in to see if that practice was really appropriate for him. He kept feeling that it wasn't in some way, but they kept throwing it back on his self-doubt, kept saying that you know, it's just the fact that you aren't seeing it for what it is, which is just an expression of doubt. So there was no escape clause for him. And what happened was that at some point he just had to leave. And I think that we have to be careful of groups that we get involved with that don't allow escape clause. I think we have to be very careful about that. And almost every tradition covers itself in some way. 
Oh, you're just leaving because of your ignorance. All of this throws us back on our self-doubt. Of course it's just me. How could I possibly have any sense of what my right path is when everybody around me is telling me that I'm the one that's wrong? And it's because they are filled with self-doubt that they won't allow escape clause to be there. And that we don't permit individual differences to occur. I once read, I was once hooked up with a similar group myself. And I remember reading a Krishnamurti book. And one line of it really solidified the situation to me. He said, never give up the most important power you have, and that's the power to make your own decisions. That's a key. That's a key. Because as Arena was talking about last night, each one of us have a very distinct path. And even within our own distinct path, we have distinct forms that come and go over a period of lifetime that are appropriate at some points and are inappropriate at other points, other times in our life. And certainly our individual differences is very separate and distinct from the person next to us who has their own set. And to judge or convey or to look for others to support your own process really throws us off of our own because we will only be together doing the same things for so long before we move out. Our understanding changes, it mixes, it becomes deeper and richer and therefore, it is often in conflict with others who haven't seen the same things or are seeing something different. And we have to honor that. I think our self-doubt leads us to embracing a tradition. And traditions can be very helpful at some times, at, at times, very, very helpful. But at other times, they can drag us down. Even the Buddha, in a very famous sutra called the Kalama Sutta, he talked about not just following traditions because other people have done it in the past or because there's some revered teacher but rather because it feels right to ourselves. Because it feels right to ourselves. It's right in, in purpose, in tone. It feels right. Which doesn't mean necessarily that it's a comfortable practice, but that it's accessing our ability to grow. And to be able to trust that is the key to our own growth.
Traditions sometimes breed a lot of sameness, a lot of repetition, but the Dharma is alive. It's vital. It's energetic. And if we're not feeling that in our practice, it may be because we're just following a tradition or just following a form and we're missing the aliveness within that form. It may be that we're robbing ourselves of that because of our self-doubt. And following a tradition or following the path of sameness leads to pointing fingers like my teacher's better than your teacher, Joseph is more this than Jack, (laughs) and Christopher, he's the one. (laughs) If we're using our practice that way, we're using it to be right but not to be free. And it's again a product of self-doubt. Sometimes we have some idea of, of what an enlightened person is like. And our self-thought looks at ourself and says, enlightenment can't possibly be in, within me. I read about the kind of love, awareness, of spontaneity and creativity. I look at myself, I can't possibly, I don't see that. So I create a God outside of myself because it can't possibly be within me with my self-doubt. And this God is created from my self-doubt. And then my self-doubt won't let me cross the gap between myself and that other because it can't see any goodness in me. And so then I have to do hard work in order to cross that gap. Penance. The fact is, my self-doubt created God. And I believe in it. The mind is convinced it can't contain the truth or love. And self-doubt is the absence of self-love. But you see, love can't be objectified, and my self-doubt needs proof. I mean, the belief system is so strong that 
whatever someone tells us, we just simply don't, to, the, to our benefit, we just don't believe it. We believe the structure. An example, I remember uh, I was teaching at Southern Dharma many years ago, seven or eight, ten years ago, and they hand out evaluation forms, like workshops, you know. And at the end, there was evaluation forms on how well I did. And then they give you these at the end. I don't think they do that anymore. I don't know. <laughs> but there were about, oh, uh, I don't know, say 20 people, 25 people in the course. And uh, I was looking through the evaluation forms. And 24 of them were saying, well, we really appreciated your talks. You know, I like this. There was one of them that was very critical. Guess which one I believed. <laughs> it didn't matter if there were 24 of them to the contrary, because my belief structure, my belief system, was focused on that one. That was the one that resonated. And so to hear that you are these qualities of love and joy, that they are contained within us all means nothing because you can't see them. You don't, they can't be objectified. The only way they can be, what, the only thing that can be done is they can be opened to. But we're so afraid to trust because of our doubting, because of our unworthiness, that we stay closed and won't access those qualities, and therefore we project them out and create our gods. And the practice of meditation is very different than all of that. It's accessing our own beauty. But first we have to heal to the damage. And that's what we're all doing or have been doing is trusting the moment just a little bit, looking at our emotion, looking at our fear, letting the images come up in a safe environment, trusting the moment. And really, I say that that's the beginning, but it's also the end. And trusting the moment, that's also inclusive of everything including the memories and whatever scarring went on early on in our life, <clears throat> it's all contained within that moment if we can learn to trust it. And the fact is that our love does begin to express itself. Our beauty does. One of the first things that usually happens to us is that we just don't want to hurt anybody anymore. That's one of the changes that probably many of you have already felt. That's an expression of your own beauty. Being allowed to emerge, to come out. We can trust that. We can trust that we can we contain that. I have a friend 
and she has a lot of self-doubt. But she also has an enormous amount of beauty that is not completely obvious to her. And she was telling me a story <clears throat> that she was going into a room and she was going to go in for a purpose of, uh, of, of love, of communicating something and, and offering something or just doing something that was based in love. And when she got into the room, somebody criticized something about her. And immediately it threw her away from her original motivation, which was to serve and love, into her self-doubt and confusion and unworthiness. Because that we give precedence over the original motivation, which was to unite and to come close. Because we believe in it more. It's more tangible to us. We've lived with it longer. We sometimes seek practices that reinforce what we feel comfortable with in ourselves. Sometimes we find practices that reinforce our sense of self-abuse because we're comfortable thinking about ourselves as an abused person. That's why in these early days of the retreat, the atmosphere that we have tried to create here has been one in which there has been a lot of permission to be. For some of you, it might have been too loose. For others of you, it might be the perfect place for you to begin to heal to your own self-abuse. Some of us feel, because we don't feel the goodness in ourselves, that we have to work towards it, that we have to strive towards it, that we have to, as I mentioned, do penance. So we seek special environments, special forms, special people to work it off. I work with dying people and remember several cases of people who wouldn't take their pain medicine because they wanted to feel the pain as penance to their sins of a lifetime. The pain medicine here is our self-love, is allowance. Don't deny us access to that by forcing us to work hard and do penance. Let's just open 
to that beauty by allowing those things to air, to show themselves. This journey is to acknowledge the truth where we stand, not to have to seek it. It's a process of opening, of revelation to the beauty that's inherent in us. If we can just allow the self-doubt and not identify so much with it. I have a friend who has a lot of self-doubt as well, as most of us do, and she was thinking of journeying to India to visit a particular meditation master over there, and she said, oh, I just, I don't know whether I should go. I don't know if I'm good enough to go to this. You know, he'll probably just, uh, whatever. And the, the interesting thing to me, and this is a woman who had done a lot of sitting, was whether she made the decision to go or not really wasn't the point because the universe was showing her the very thing she needed to attend to, and that was her doubt. And the thing closest at hand is usually the thing that we most need to learn from, but we seldom do because we're so identified with the pattern And we forget that it's the relationship to an object that is the important thing. Not whether we create a lot of samadhi or whether we are meticulous in our mindfulness. Although important, it's our relationship to those things How is it, how are we when we don't have samadhi? How are we when our mind leaves the breath? And how are we when we bring it back? What's our relationship to these things? Because it's in the relationship that these deep-seated patterns and belief systems will show themselves, like our self-doubt. And those are the things that call for our attention not the breath, because those are the things that perpetuates our relationship to life in general. Those are the structures that we live from and color our perceptions. So it's not allowing our limitations to create an attitude through which we screen events and learn, but rather to learn from those attitudes themselves, 
It's not waiting for the absence of self-doubt before taking responsibility. Because self-doubt is a state, it's not a description. It's a mood. It doesn't point to a description of who you are. So to ask ourselves from time to time, what attitude am I resting my practice on? How does self-doubt affect me? This is the, one of the methods that we can use to regenerate interest in our, in our practice. To get over the hump sometimes of sameness. To look more closely at how our relationship to things are deepens our practice and frees us from those relationships. Are we waiting for positive assurances that we are holy or good? Interestingly enough, and this sounds contradictory, our self-doubt will reveal those assurances themselves. Because self-doubt abides in emptiness. Self-doubt is nothing but it points nowhere, it goes nowhere, it describes nothing. And to be able to have self-doubt and yet be completely free of it, to move right through it, to see right through it, like the air. The third Zen patriarch says, To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about our self-doubt. So that if it's here, it's here. If it's here, it's here. What difference does it make? To live in this faith is the road to, the non, to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. The non-dual is faith. Seeing it for what it is. There is faith which will counteract our mistrust 
because it sees through it. There's a story about the Dalai Lama that I think sort of sums it up. He was in Bodh Gaya a number of years ago, and there was a meditation course going on, and he was invited to come and give a talk at the meditation course. And he came into the room, and he sat down, and he said, Let's see now, what should I talk about? And then he grabs his head and he says, Oh my, confusion already. (laughs) Just for a moment, let's look at that. Because it's a beautiful statement of not only the man's humanness, the fact that confusion arises didn't bother him. There was warmth. He met it with warmth. There was humor. It was the dance of life being displayed in his mind. And he just was a human being in which he expressed that. Maybe we can recall that image from time to time when our own confusion arises, when our own self-doubt comes up. And joyfully participate anyway, even with that self-doubt. When self-doubt comes from a weakened sense of self, it's destructive. But when the self becomes healthy, doubt turns into a tool of discrimination and becomes an instrument towards our liberation. For we begin to question we begin to probe we begin to inquire and not just assume A brief story. Back in the late 70s, Mahasi Sayadaw came through this center while I was sitting. And there was a lot of energy and projection onto the man. And, I mean, he was an interesting person. But I didn't, I, for some reason, I just, I didn't feel much 
heart connection with him. And I just didn't project onto him. I just didn't have the same kind of, I didn't uh, evaluate him in the same way. I didn't disavow him. I just, it, I just held him differently in my mind. And I went back. I wasn't uh, free of my projections, and I was caught up somewhat because those who I respected a lot respected him, and I could see some, something there. So I went back with him to Burma and became a monk. <laughs> Just the story continues. I went back to him with him to Burma and started to learn his method. And all around me, uh, all day long, over the loudspeakers, there would be his voice. And, and the, the whole monastery was very saturated with his presence. And after having been there a number of months, the practice began to feel very dry. And his teachers, I didn't see Mahasi Saidal directly, but I saw his teachers, they kept telling me that, you know, to keep trying and that I was doing well. And, and suddenly the whole thing just fell flat. It caved in. It imploded. And I, I, I can't, this is it. I'm out of here, you know. It just wasn't because, I mean, I, but, but, but I could see that if I had just kept the projection up, I would have continued there for month after month after month. But something just because it wasn't my way at that particular time. Not to say that it doesn't have its val validity uh, to many, many people, and it's been very helpful, but to me, at that particular time, it wasn't the practice that I needed to follow, regardless of how important of a figure this was. And what I needed to do at that time was to leave. And it was the best thing I ever did. It was the best thing I ever did. I have not looked back at all. And you see, this practice we cannot afford to look back. Once we see something, we cannot turn back. We can't turn back. No, we don't have time to do that. You can't question yourself. There's no time. We just go on. Just go on. And in that going on, we go right into our heart and it opens. Because we have seen through and self-doubt no longer contains us. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.